Welcome to a new episode of Let's Talk Law, the Law Careers podcast for students at King's College London. I'm Caroline Lindner, one of the careers consultants for the Dixon Poon School of Law at King's, and today I am delighted to be joined by Paula McMullen. Paula is a career coach for lawyers, having spent 25 years in the profession. It all started when she left her career in the hotel business to study law at KCL as a mature student. She then trained at Norton Rose Fulbright and was a project finance lawyer until she moved into the people side of the profession, helping law firms to recruit and develop their lawyers. She has been coaching lawyers at all stages in their career for the past 15 years, as well as being the head of recruitment at Slaughter and May and the first internal careers coach at Allen and Overy. Paula helps her clients to understand what is important to them in their life and their career so that they can find the professional fulfilment they deserve. Paula, thank you so much for joining me today. It's lovely to have you on board for our podcast. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Caroline. I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. Thank you. So first question is telling, you know, tell us all about your journey to Kings. It sounds like it was quite a bit, an interesting one. It was indeed, yes. I actually going coming uh, applying to Kings, um, studying at Kings, I should say, was actually my second university. But I don't. Um, you're, you're lucky. I'm disclosing my secrets here. Uh, <laughs> when I left school, I wanted to find the cure for cancer. And so I actually spent a year at Imperial doing biochemistry, but I got a bit fed up because they 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 asked us to go down to London Zoo and count the toe on toes on the animals, and we'd spend afternoons learning how to chop up plant stems with razor blades, and it really didn't excite me very much. <laughs> Not quite what you were expecting um, <laughs> then. And it was at that time that I met my almost husband, um, who was French, and we went. We in fact, I, I left university and we went to live in France, and that's how I ended up going into the hotel business, which um, I loved. The hotel business taught me so much from a very early age because you see people 24 hours a day. You see the best of people, you see the worst of people. And we we had some pretty exciting guests who came to stay as well. So I had to learn very quickly to think on my feet. I had to know that panicking when things are going wrong is not a good idea, that, that, that there is always a solution. And of course, those are such vital, vital skills uh, to have when you're a lawyer. So when I finally decided that actually the hotel business was very, where it was fun, but it wasn't really where my long-term career, I wanted my long-term career to head, I chose to do the law because I wanted to do something with my French. And so I was Lucky, I didn't realise at the time, but in fact, I was the first mature student to be offered a place on the dual French and English law degree at King's, which at that time hadn't been going for very long. And so I had a fabulous, had a fabulous time. In fact, I didn't continue with the French side. I, I transferred onto the, the, the straight law degree. So I did graduate within the three years, but I had an amazing time at King's. Um, and... I just remember sitting in massive a massive lecture theatre with Professor Guest, who was the editor of Anson's Contract Law, telling us all the different contract law cases that we were we we needed to memorise. I mean, I, I I can't imagine how it's taught these days, but um, I do remember memorising pages and pages of contract law cases, and weirdly, I can still remember the stories now. Um, I can't remember the cases and I have no idea what the law is, but I can remember the <laughs> stories. Um, and that in itself is a really useful learning that um, stories are the things that stick. 
So yes, when I graduated, I in fact, I didn't apply for a training contract straight away because like very many people, sadly, very many people, I suffered from imposter syndrome. And despite the fact that I got a really good solid 2-1, I didn't think I was clever enough to be a solicitor. And looking back on it now, it's utterly ludicrous, utterly ludicrous. But I decided to take some time out. So I traveled the world and I went to Paris and I was I set up a, a mini law firm in Paris which was a lot of uh, a lot of fun and again great experience and it was actually working in that law firm and working alongside a partner on an arbitration that made me realize Paula what are you doing of course you can be a, a, a trainee or, or even a lawyer and so I was offered a training contract with Norton Rose had a, a fantastic training experience it really was a great place to learn and every seat I did I kept thinking oh this is where I want to this is what I do want to do for the rest of my life shipping litigation and then tax and then banking and then corporate and then uh, banking again and um yeah so it was it was it was quite a difficult decision but what swayed me to decide on where to qualify was that at the time if you wanted to go overseas finance was just about the only uh, work that overseas officers were doing so that's the reason I went into finance and I managed to shuffle myself sideways into project finance because it was the only part of the law that I had found where you can see a tangible result right so, so what, what sort of clients were you working for there or were there particular sectors that you were um, representing we acted for the lenders on the widening of the M40 mm-hmm. and so it was interesting to see how roads are financed and constructed and then I did a number of different projects in the energy sector. The most interesting one I did was financing, acting for a consortium that was building or, or at least was in negotiations with the Burmese government to build a power plant and a fertiliser plant with US, the only the only source of US dollars they had going into the country at the time because sanctions had just been imposed. And that was fascinating, not just from the, the legal perspective, but the cultural perspective, you know, going to Myanmar and going to the capital, negotiating with the Burmese government and taking time out every time I went I'd take a little bit of time and tack it on and and just go and explore the country and it's an absolutely stunning beautiful country and the people Mm -hmm. are wonderful Um, as it turns out the project didn't go ahead uh, which is obviously sad for the for the people in in Yangon because um, uh, it, it, it it was going to offer them a cheaper source of fuel but obviously things have moved on in 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 that mm. in the country since then but that was quite a formative time in my career and helped me to understand that i really had made the right decision yeah so let's just sort of dial back a little bit if i may paula so you you mentioned there about imposter syndrome which i certainly do see with some of the students that i speak with and i've seen it during my career with trainees and qualified lawyers would you say that was the biggest barrier that you had to overcome with your sort of university studies or the time immediately immediately afterwards or were there other things that you were having to grapple with at the same time well i had 
yeah, so to answer your question, yes, I had imposter syndrome once I'd finished my studies. I wasn't aware of it during during my time at, at university. It was just afterwards when I had this big decision to make about, well, what do I do? And I could see my I could see my my the students that I'd graduated with who were all going and, you know, a lot of them had actually got themselves a training contract. Um, one of the things that I think I think the thing that made it a little bit different for me was because I'd done something else in my career before, I was just so delighted to get to university and to be able to do things that I never in a million years imagined I could. So, for mm. example, in the very first month of being at university, there was a sign on the notice board um that's how far we're going back now there were notice boards um, <laughs> and to say that uh, the the social committee was um wanting to put together a team to produce the law society play and i went along thinking oh i could probably help with costumes and i don't know how but half an hour later i'd volunteered to direct the wretched thing <laughs> <laughs> what, what what was the play can you it remember it was blithe spirit by oh. noel howard never having had anything to do with drama or the theater no idea at all but um but again it was one of those situations where uh you don't know what you don't know and i learned as i went along and and it was it, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. But of course, I got rather distracted by that because it was fun. And I didn't I didn't put as much effort into my studies as I would definitely be advising people to do now because my grades were two two in my first year. And nowadays, law firms are a lot more focused on your grades throughout your entire university life. Um, I've 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 interviewed people, or at least I've I've had applications from people who have had a, a very poor first year because their lecturers were saying, oh, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't count towards your final grade, and you cannot afford to take that approach now. I was lucky because back then law firms were recruiting differently, but nowadays because there's so much competition, it's very important to know how to balance your studies against your your broader university experience. So um, for me, I wasn't focused. And I think, as I say, it's because it was so amazing not to be working and yeah. to be able to, to do all these things I'd never done before. Um, otherwise, um, no, I, I, I honestly can't remember there being anything else holding me back other than the lack of focus. And, and then, as I say, when I finally did graduate thinking, oh, oh, now what? Oh, oh. So, um, yeah, and I, unfortunately, everything has worked out. Um, yeah. I got there in a rather circuitous way, but I've, you know, I have, I have had an amazing career in the law. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a really important thing just to um, sort of reflect upon there, because I think people do believe that careers are sort of in one line, they're linear, and actually uh, people do find their own path in a myriad of different ways. And it sounds like, you know, that's certainly been the case for you and we'll come on to that a bit later on. But um, just before we leave your 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 life of commercial lawyer behind, um, what was it about commercial law though that attracted you? You talk, you've spoken about some of the deals that you're involved in and they do sound fascinating, but why did you decide a commercial law firm would be the right place for you? I am going to be really honest here, and it might make me sound um, a bit of an, um, I wasn't say innocent, but maybe just a bit lazy. I applied because I knew who they were. Yeah. 
I, that's what it came down to. Um, I didn't go into the law thinking I was going to be a solicitor because I'd gone into the law wanting to use my French. Sure. And it was as a result of the um, learning the French. I just didn't I didn't really enjoy the French law element. And that's the reason I just chose I, I chose to, to transfer. So by the time I got to the end of my law degree and I realised that other people had all secured these training contracts and I hadn't even thought about it, then I suddenly thought, oh, have I been left behind? Oh, gosh, what's happening? Have I been left behind? Because it, it wasn't being a solicitor had never really been the driving force be, behind me doing a law degree. And I think it's very easy for 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 students when I, the, the graduates or the undergrads that I talk to now to still be confused about what they want and it's just a bit unfortunate that law firms the way that law firms are now recruiting to you know in this war for talent which quite frankly they've they've kind of made themselves to be recruiting people out of their first year mm-hmm. and even if they're doing it in the normal cycle a lot of people are going to be applying this year when they've only just gone into their second year mm. you know they haven't done half of their core subjects yet and you're being asked to make a decision with very little information and so for me Norton Rose had sponsored some drinks mm. and I did some research on them and thought oh that's interesting oh they're working they're doing things like energy and um, at the time they were they were doing a lot more domestic work and it, they were they were working for names that I recognised mm-hmm. and I could imagine myself doing that kind of work. Um, and I only applied to half a dozen law firms, uh, yeah, yeah. but they were all similar to Norton Rose because I talked to people at a drinks party when I was at King's and I liked them and that had stuck in my mind. Yeah. There was nothing more sophisticated than that, Caroline, I'm embarrassed to say. Well, I think there's probably a lot more people who would, maybe they won't admit that as openly as you have, but I suspect it's been a similar situation for them. And and you touched upon, again, something that I have sort of been uh, seeing quite a lot recently um, in the student appointments that I do at King's, people who've got to the end of their degree, and I think suddenly is the the so what, what do I do now? And maybe they have got a lot of friends who have got things lined up. Um, and I, I spend a lot of time hopefully reassuring those students that it's OK to be at that stage. You don't have to have got everything lined up really early on at university. But you're somebody who is in that situation. So I just wonder, do you have any sort of advice to someone who finds himself in that situation now, having graduated and perhaps not quite knowing what, what to do next? Mm. So in terms of, of um, what to do next, I... The, the job market is very different from when I was when I graduated um, and I I packed up my my rucksack and I did around the world trip when people weren't doing that. The only other people I were meet, was meeting were, were Australians and Canadians and Kiwis because that's mm-hmm. part of their culture. But but and people were saying to me, oh, you're so brave. Um, so in some ways, I just postponed my decision. Yeah. But today, I think that. I think it's really important for anybody who is a bit confused about where they want to take their life, first of all, to understand that their life is long, we hope. Their life is going to be long. They have a lot of road to travel. And despite what um, our, our parents and 
other people in positions of authority might believe that actually you have a career and that's that's what you become for your life. That is not the way the world is today with portfolio careers, with people having side hustles, with I think law firms are or some law firms are definitely waking up to the fact that having people coming into the practice with more life experience is going to give them a far more rounded lawyer at the end of the day with more confidence and more, um, I was going to use the word common sense, that's not the right word, but more, um, I guess it's confidence to handle the unknown. Mm. Um, and so if you're wondering about where to take yourself next, I think it's really valuable to to do some exploratory work around what's important to you as a, as a human being and to to build on on that to build your career based on that so one of the reasons that i well it's no it's not one of the reasons it's the only reason the only reason that i do what i do is because my core purpose is to be of service to others that is mm. the thing that drives me it's the thing that gets me out of a hole if i get depressed about something I just raise myself up because I think, Paula, you are helping people. So when you understand what your core drivers are, then you can retrofit your career around that as opposed to, well, I could go into the city. I could be I could go into banking because um, I know that's you know, I could earn I could earn some money. I could buy myself a, a house. Um, and I'm sure I'd make lots of contacts and I could then move out of banking later on. It could be something like that, when in mm. fact, if what, what banking people in the banking world actually do does not light a fire within you, you're going to be miserable. Yeah, yeah. you're going to be miserable. And that goes for, for people who do know they want to be lawyers. But if you're if you're looking to apply for a training contract, make sure that you understand the firm, make sure that you understand the culture and what they stand for. Because if you <clears throat> if you are the kind of person who for whom success is important, then there will be certain law firms that will push you and progress you because you have that ambition. Mm. But if you are a person who wants balance in your life or who wants to be doing pro bono alongside your fee earning work, then you need to understand whether or not the firm is going to offer you that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's uh, I think that's vital no matter what area what 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 um, kind of of job? What sector you go into? Law or something totally different? Um, and then I think it's about networking. Mm. The, one of the biggest um, the biggest reasons that my clients move into roles that really that they love that they're excited about is using LinkedIn and networking and having conversations with people and finding out what they really do because job titles you can say anything in a job title you know I saw somebody the other day who was the chief happening officer <laughs> that sounds fun <laughs> that's a new one on me Paula yeah chief happening officer fantastic um so you can call yourself whatever you like it really is about getting to getting underneath and understanding what happens on a day-to-day -day basis what is it that makes them want to come to work and seeing what resonates within you and then investigating okay so where might those opportunities be because there are so many opportunities in the world of work that are not that don't go through recruiters they're not on job boards and they are secured through networking
Before we get on to more about what you do on a day to day, I just want to take this opportunity to ask you because you were at uh, Slaughter and May, which is, as we know, is a fantastic firm and recruits a lot of graduates every year. Um, apart from good academics, um, what else are law firms really looking for? So they want to know that you understand what it is to be a lawyer, that you you get the profession. And that, and the reason that this is important to law firms is because it can, I mean, I, I'm not sure what the up-to-date figures were, but for um, quite a few years ago, I remember seeing that the investment law firms make in each of their, in each of their trainees is, is a quarter of a million pounds. Yeah. Now, I don't know if that's up-to-date because that's going back a while. And I suspect with a, with a rise in um, LPC fee costs and, <clears throat> and now with the SQE, I don't know whether that figure has, I'm, I'm sure that figure will have been revised upwards. So they want to know that if they make you a training contract offer, that A, you're going to take it, B, you're going to be um, useful to them through the training contract period, because a lot of the time um, trainees are uh, a cost centre. Yeah. They don't create profit because so much time is spent on training you and supervising you, correcting the <laughs> the work that you're doing because you're learning. That's the role of a trainee. Uh, but they want to know that you're going to stay on qualification. They want to know that they are going to get their money back from you. And if you have cost them a quarter of a million pounds, then, you know, it's possibly going to be a good two years before they start to see the benefit of the investment they've made in you. So it's really important that when you're applying for training contracts, you get across the idea that you understand what it is to be a lawyer. You understand that you're not just applying for a training contract. This is the gateway to your long term career, whether that's the way you see it or not, because I do talk to people who say, well, if I'm a lawyer, I get a good grounding. And then after a couple of years, I'm going to move into I'm going to move into industry, go in house, whatever. That's fine. That's fine. If that's your game plan, just remember you are selling yourself. You are positioning yourself as the person that they really want to give a training contract to. And so that is making sure that you're telling your story to convince the law firm that you see them as a long-term prospect. So that's the first thing. Make sure you understand what lawyers really do. And when I ask that question sometimes when I'm coaching people, I'll hear things like, well, you have to be reliable and you need a good attention to detail and you need to make sure that you don't miss any deadlines. You need to be very organised. And that's fine as far as it goes. But frankly, you need that in pretty much any job. There's nothing, yes. there is nothing specific to being a lawyer there. So what is it? I always ask the question, what do clients pay their lawyers for? Why do they need lawyers? Because it's a service, you know, what, what the lawyers are obviously delivering something that the clients value. That's what you need to be thinking about. And quite often I get asked questions around commercial, commercial awareness. That is one of the, the key things that's important is to understand why law firms get paid because that's what drives the business so understanding that when you're applying for a, a training contract is is also important but it's 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 impressive when you talk about it talk about your career in those terms when you get to interview or if you're in an assessment center once you've got a person opposite you mm -hmm. um and what else are law firms looking for so they they want to know that you've made a well-reasoned choice as well that um, and I do get people who say to me oh I've wanted to be a lawyer since I was 12 years old and 
I'm not I'm not saying anything positive or negative about that. That's a statement that I hear people say. I've wanted to be a lawyer ever since whenever. And sometimes it's because they come from a family of lawyers. I have had people say to me that something bad has happened to their family. And it was a lawyer who actually re rescued them from, from a very bad situation. And that has inspired them. Um, and then there are other people who, well, like me, you know, just just don't know quite what to do with themselves or um, they just kind of fall into it mm -hmm. and this can happen if you've done a law degree that the answer would be well I've done a law degree so why wouldn't I become a lawyer and it's like yeah that's not enough mm -hmm. <laughs> that's not enough I want to know what inspires you to be a lawyer I want to know that this is not just something that you're assuming is going to happen because of your degree choice and actually, people who have a non-law background often come across as more cogent in that regard because they've had to make a conscious choice. I'm not going to be a historian. I'm not going to go into a lab and be a chemist. I'm not going to go off and do engineering. I'm going to do the law because. So this is a, this is a really important piece of advice that I would give law undergrads is really know your story as to why the law is for you. Yeah. And, and, you know, law firms will recognise that if you are applying at, in your first year or if you're just at the beginning of your second year, law firms understand that you may not have as much to talk about because you don't have as much life experience, even as someone who is a non-law graduate who's got that extra year. And law firms understand that. Mm -hmm. They really do. So it's looking at your experience to date um, and and kind of drawing, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Drawing analogies from the, from what you've done to date and what you believe law, lawyers do. Yeah. So again, it's vital to be networking. It's vital to be following people on LinkedIn, seeing what they're saying about their their work, understanding what being a lawyer is like in reality. Um, that sometimes it can be very very boring because you're just churning around documents. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not sexy, but there'll be that one clause that's got something really gnarly in it. And that's and you're getting your head around that and you're making sure that your client's wishes are represented and that it's going to stand up if it ever went to court. And that's where I used to get real satisfaction. Yeah. yeah. And interesting, you mentioned about the investment that law firms put into trainees. And I think you're right, Paula. I suspect that figure of a quarter of a million pounds has gone upwards now, particularly with starting salaries having gone up as well. Um, the other thing I always look to remind students about, and I did it when I was a recruiter as well, is to remind them that for most law firms is a partnership structure still. So the people sitting opposite you will be partners nine times out of 10. It's their firm, it's their money. Absolutely. So they, so it's a very personal decision for them actually. And mm. law firms don't, recruit hundreds of graduates a year it, it's not like a bank or an accountancy firm so it is a very personal decision that they're making on behalf of their fellow partners as well so that's something else just to throw into the mix so let's move on to what you do now um mm. what does a coach actually do paula um coaching in its purest sort of definition is uh it's a process where the coach asks questions of the client to help the client get clear on what they what they want and what they're struggling with and to find their own solutions 
And so it's it's very it's a guided conversation. And the skill of the coach comes in the way that they reflect back to the client what what is happening, what they are noticing. And it's that perspective that can sometimes give huge clarity to the client. So um, it's it's very much a client led process as well. So as as the coach in if I'm just being a pure coach, I see myself as acting as the catalyst. So I know that my client already has loads of resource within them. They've got the answers to their questions within them, but there is something preventing them getting in touch with that. There is a, something blocking them from seeing their potential, from seeing the way forward, from understanding how they can behave differently around certain people to get a different result. That's already, that's in them. So my skill is asking the questions that makes them go, ah, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that. Yeah. yeah. And why do lawyers come to you for support as a coach? And are, are there any common themes that you see? Yeah, I I work with lawyers across the board, but but I have a particular program which is aimed at lawyers who are sort of two year two years PQE all the way up to partnership, which is um, a mastermind. So so lawyers come to me because they feel stuck. They feel stuck, whether that is they want to get a promotion, they want to get to senior associate or they want to make it to partner and they don't understand the process because in many law firms, the path to partnership is opaque. People mm-hmm. aren't really very sure. And even if there is a, a stated, this happens, then this happens, and then this happens, there's still a lot of smoke and mirrors behind it. And, and I've got some ideas as to why that is. But um, very often, lawyers or, or associates don't really know what they need to be doing in order to get in front of the partners, in order for the partners to think, yeah, I can see myself sitting around a table with this person, becoming a co-owner of the business. So I work with with lawyers in in uh, who, who are struggling with that to understand what it is that the firm is going to value and how they can fill the gap of what the firm needs mm-hmm. that the firm may not even realise they need, but also what the clients need. So it, it's it's broadly giving them a strategy that they can then implement over the next year, two years, four years, whatever that path is from where they are now to to the promotion they want to get. So that's the first kind of lawyer. The second kind of lawyer is stuck for different reasons in that they're not enjoying their work anymore. And that can be for a number of reasons. They're not doing work that interests them and they can't find sponsorship to, to make a change into a different team they are getting burnt out because they're they're working really, really hard and they're not feeling valued. Um, It could be that they have just fallen out of law, love with the law, or they want to move into a more commercial role. So they're they're stuck because they don't know how to make that move. So again, Mm. I work with them to develop their strategy around, right, what do I actually want that's based on what's important to me? And where are those opportunities? And then they move into something that comes their way as a result of having a broader view on the market. What, what's the best thing about being a coach? Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, you, you're driven by wanting to help people. But, you know, when, you, when you've had a good day in the office, what, what's that like for you, Paula? Um, it's it's always I, I'm I have um, 
a preference for extroversion and that means that I get my energy from outside myself and I love it when I get emails and whatsapps from my clients to say I'm through to the second round I never thought I'd even get the interview and then a few days later they've made me an offer and <laughs> then I just I love that I could I could jump over the moon when I hear that um for me it's also when I check in with my clients after three months so they finish the program and then I always offer them a check-in to see what's happened in that time because my plan is for them never ever to have to come back to me yeah. that that is what coaching is about it's not something that goes on and on and on and on I want them to fly fly and um I check in to make sure that they are flying and they'll say to me god you know I can't I, I just couldn't imagine being where I am now before I started working with you. And, you know, things, my life has changed. And even when things, you know, let's say I have um, a snippy day with my partner or with um, my manager, you know, if they're in house, I've now I know now how, how to handle that and it doesn't affect me. So I can go home and I don't, I'm not thinking about work. Yeah. And um I'm just touching on uh, you mentioned Caroline about uh, the the really the real hike in um, in salaries and there will be a knock on effect on chargeable hours and expectations and already the city is absolutely bonkers for some people but I've been working with somebody who was working at a firm where uh, which had very high expectations and this client was working through the evenings working through the weekends not feeling valued not feeling as if they were going to be pushed for partnership and had just had enough. They've now moved to another firm that also has high expectations, but my client is now working with people that they respect. They, are, they themselves feel valued. They are a part of the business. They are part of the succession plan and they are working just as long hours. But they've said to me, I am doing so much more in my private life because it's not taken up with worrying about my job. Yeah. So it's perfectly possible to to have a life where you do work hard and you do put in the hours and you're still feeling fulfilled in your private life as well. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, we're in the most extraordinary of times over the last sort of 18 to 20 months with the global pandemic. And I just wondered, have you seen a change in what your clients are looking for support on? Has there been one overriding theme because of you know the fact that we've all been forced to work from home? We've had a very uncertain time in some sectors were we going to go into recession weren't we going to go into recession there was a lot of uncertainty particularly at the beginning I'm just really intrigued to know whether you whether that how that impacted your work and the type of things that people are coming to you for support with uh yeah absolutely and I I would say we are not working from home we are living where we work yeah it's a very, very different take on things. And this is the biggest problem that many, many people are experiencing. And particularly those who don't live in a very big place. And it's not just a question of whether or not they've got outside space. It's a question of whether or not they can get away from their partner who is also working from home. Yeah. And so for me, it's been around boundaries. And People are working longer because they don't have the commute. So the fact that they don't have the commute does not mean, oh, I've got this lovely half an hour that I didn't have before. No, no, no. It's I am starting work when I would normally be getting on the train. So this has been fantastic for for employers, you know, law firms and every other employer has been fantastic because people have been starting earlier and finishing later. And one of the themes that comes up quite a, quite often with my clients is knowing when to switch off in the evenings. Yeah. 
because if they haven't got anything planned and you know during lockdown no one could go anywhere so oh, well I may as well carry on working particularly for people who were living by themselves they had nothing else to do and it, it was eroding the respect that they had for their own stuff and so understanding our boundaries where our healthy boundaries are and that's boundaries for our, ourselves it's a boundary with our friends and family and our social selves, but then also with our professional selves and knowing where those boundaries are and, and how to get them respected so that, you know, people have been telling me they've been going to sleep at one o'clock in the morning after having worked, woken up at seven o'clock in the morning with emails from from partners saying, why haven't you answered my email? Well, I've been asleep, actually. <laughs> Try to recharge the batteries. Yeah. So I'm going to so, do a good job for you tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. right. So, so, so some of the work I do with people, it's not just understanding their own stresses and making sure that they don't burn out because they are conscious of what their body needs to recharge, but also how to, how to handle massively stressed out partners because that behaviour comes from somewhere. Yeah. You know, the partners themselves are struggling. And so understanding that and being able to handle that kind of behaviour and understanding the impact that working in that kind of environment can have on us then gives us some choices. Yeah, and I guess it's we about what you can control and what you can't control and accepting that, which is certainly something that I have learned a great deal about myself during my career. And I think you do get that with, um, you know, with experience, but it does take time to to learn how to manage that as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I've heard people saying, well, I don't do anything unless I know I'm guaranteed 100% uh, success. I'm going to be successful 100%. And to me, that sounds really stressful because mm. you cannot control so much. The only thing you can control is your own reactions and um, the things that you do, the things that you think, the things that you believe. That's all you have any control over. And if you're in a situation that you can't control, the choice you have is to decide whether or not you remove yourself from it. You know, that's the choice. Do I continue in this situation or don't I? Yeah. Gosh, my goodness me, Paula, we've got again so much information and so much great content from you, but we, we're coming towards the end of our time together, actually. Um, and I guess I have one final question for, for you, um, unless you want to add anything else in, is, is, you know, what would you say the best piece of advice you've been given in your career to date is? Yeah, I actually wrote this down, um, Caroline, because it's been so important and I'm still learning this today, but it is to surround yourself with inspiring people and inspiring ideas. So despite the fact that I have had a long career to date and I don't see it ending anytime soon, I'm gonna be, I've had about six different careers in my lifetime. I, it's not gonna stop here. And I am now working with, with a new coach myself who I absolutely love and and I respect her she is a massively successful businesswoman and I am being coached by her and I am so excited about that so that that is the the single most valuable thing that I can suggest to people is surround yourself with people who inspire you who who make you want to do more and be more and I'm not saying better because that's that there's a judgment in there. But who is it that when you look at them, you think, wow, how have they done that? What can I learn from them? And then the inspiring ideas, it's to 
as lawyers, it's we, we don't have a great deal of time and we do need to keep on top of our trade, you know, knowing the law, knowing the updates, knowing what's going on for our clients commercially. But um, finding time to listen to podcasts or to read books or to have conversations about something totally and utterly different will reap, reap rewards in so many ways because it will trigger your um, what am I trying to say? It will trigger your creativity and your innovative ideas, and that in turn will really serve you in in your in your profession as a lawyer. So my very far, last question for you, um, and you put this on your LinkedIn this morning, um, <laughs> and I guess because I I have interviewed you, so I get to choose. Um, you're talking about people who are creative and inspiring. Um, you spoke with Bono once yeah. from you too. So I can't let you go without telling us about <laughs> how that came about and, and what on earth did you speak about? Well, uh, it's it's a great tagline, isn't it? It gets people interested. So oh, I worked I worked in a, a West End hotel, which landed a contract with one of the agents that uh, represented mega stars mega 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 stars and U2 was one of those bands and other people behind the desk they were kind of more into funk and jazz and they didn't care about U2 so when they said U2 I stuck to the reception desk <laughs> no one else is talking to them so when Bono walked in and it was at the time when he used to wear that crazy big hat yes. and uh, it's like oh, it's him it's him and um, he came to the desk and he said uh, his name and I'd like to check in. And I just looked at it and I couldn't speak. And so that kind of made him take notice because he could see that I couldn't speak and he was super nice to me. So eventually we had a conversation and I took him up and showed him around his suite and said, you know, if, if you need anything, then do let me know. I'm on shift. My name is Paula. Give me a call. And with about half an hour, he said, he rang up the front desk and said, hello, Paula. I can't get my TV to work. <laughs> <laughs> so you scurried upstairs. Yeah, I got Bono's TV to work. That's my claim to fame. <laughs> well, it's it's great to hear that somebody of his uh, fame and level of fame is is was actually a very nice person to speak with. It was lovely. They were all lovely, actually. They were all lovely, and um, I have to say, my my secret crush, which isn't so secret now, is uh, is Larry Mullen, the drummer, who is gorgeous and a lovely man and he got me free tickets and after the concert um he he met me and my friend and we had a really nice chat and they're a lovely bunch of guys they really are so yeah that's my my that's story a, that's a great story what a great way to end um, our episode today <laughs> um before i let you go though paula i just want to remind our listeners that we'll be back soon with another episode of let's talk law where we'll be talking to another graduate of king's uh, to hear more about their life and what they've done beyond their degrees. Um, but in the meantime, on behalf of our listeners, thank you so much, Paula. It's been an absolute joy speaking with you today. Um, I think you've given our listeners some really great insights um, into the realities of being a lawyer, um, not just at the start of your career, but what actually happens during your career, some of the decisions people have to take, some of the pressures people have to um, grapple with, but also the fact, hopefully in a reassuring way, that there is always support out there, whether that's through a professional, personal, or indeed a combination of the two in terms of your network. So thank you once again, it's been fantastic uh, chatting with you.
I've loved it. I really have. And thank you so much for inviting me. Um, that Yes, the one thing I would just leave everybody with is just remember there is always a way. Yeah, that's a great way of ending it. Thank you, Paula. Take care. Thank you. Bye.